Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Cowboy Casanova, an ACM Song of the Year nominee that was performed by Carrie Underwood and written by Carrie, Mike Elizondo, and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Brett James. James is a two-time ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year who has earned 25 number one hits with songs such as Who I Am by Jessica Andrews, Bottoms Up by Brantley Gilbert, I Hold On by Dirks Bentley, and Jesus Take the Wheel, which was nominated for ACM and CMA Song of the Year awards and won a Grammy for Best Country Song. Brett will join us to chat about his remarkable career as a behind-the-scenes Nashville songwriter, as well as his recently released artist EP, I Am Now. Part one. Hey, Scott. How's it going, man? Going well. Going well. Uh, year nine of the uh, COVID-19 uh, <laughs> sheltering in place. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I feel like we should let people know that we're doing something different today. We've, we've been doing stuff over the phone and, you know, with Pro Tools connectivity uh, throughout this time period. But now we're on FaceTime. I can see you right now. Indeed. And I have not seen you. Uh, maybe just one one or two brief times over FaceTime, but this is the, the most extended face-to-face conversation we've had. Yeah, I have not seen you actually in person since March, uh, early March. Yeah. And um, I don't know if I've ever seen you from this angle. Yeah, well, I've got the phone sitting on something. It's it's not my most flattering look. I thought, you'd, uh, I thought maybe you'd gotten a lot taller. <laughs> I'd say your beard's gotten taller. <laughs> it has. It's, it's like reverse taller. Like it's it's. <laughs> crawling down your body it looks amazing yeah like I thought we were talking to Billy Gibbons again today (laughs) I'm uh, I'm trying to get to the point where I just don't need a shirt anymore I can just rely on the beard (laughs) well uh, this now would be the time (laughs) I I think pretty much uh, you know pandemic rules are no rules (laughs) exactly so uh, I'll tell you another thing that that has happened during the pandemic um, you know you're you always got to look for the the silver linings you know in in the dark clouds and uh, it occurred to me and maybe it's just having been at home and and you know being kind of stuck here um, but I realized you know I think it would be fair to categorize me as a music fan Uh, I'd say so (laughs) But I, I, I realized over the years, I've sort of become complacent in terms of uh, accepting that listening to music via my iPhone or via Spotify on my computer speakers was an acceptable way to, to consume music. Um, right. And, you know, it is convenient. I'll give it that. And if you're out for a jog... You're not going to, you know, drag a turntable and a wagon with uh, nine miles of extension cord behind you, right? (laughs) But when it comes to quality, you know, I realized, you know what? I've got a CD collection that has 6,000 CDs in it, and I don't really have a good way to just put one of those into something and hit play and listen to it. So I wound Hmm. up buying uh, some really nice speakers. I bought a new turntable. I bought a new CD player, uh, new stereo receiver. 
And I feel like I was taking a giant step in technology backwards by about 30 years uh, <laughs> and a huge leap into uh, improvement when it can't, comes to just the sound. So I've been, man, I've just been listening to CDs and, yeah. and vinyl and listening to music that I forgot how great it sounds. Um, I applaud that. That that's a that's what we call a quality of life purchase, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I don't know how long we're going to be stuck in this thing. You know, we're we're all waiting for a vaccine here, and until that day comes, uh, at least I will have some good tunes. And just so everyone who's listening knows, uh, this is not an old episode. I know a lot of you in your states have begun to reopen, but for the most part, we are still dealing with the COVID lockdown here in California, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And there has been. Um, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of turmoil and upheaval, uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And, yeah. um, I know people will be listening to this, uh, podcast at different times and at different points. And maybe you're listening to it, you know, years after, <laughs> after, uh, this has all gone on, but right now we're in the thick of it and we're having protests. We're having a huge national conversation, um, an important national conversation. And one yeah. thing that, that stuck out to me as I was listening to a vinyl copy of, uh, Marvin Gaye's what's going on album. It was recorded yeah. in 1971 and I was listening to it and it was actually the weekend before everything kind of came to a head with the protests. And, yeah. and I was listening to this record and I'm listening to the lyrics and I'm thinking, man, this sounds like it could have been written today. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's just as relevant now as it was in 1971. And I was moved um, by the power of that music and just experiencing it uh, once again on a good sound system um, and listening to those words and then thinking about how those words still resonate. Uh, it was, yeah. it was uh, a reminder of how powerful you know, music and, and lyrics really can be to address, you know, what's happening in our spirits. Yeah. And, and I think we're obviously as music fans really familiar with the music of that era and, and Marvin Gaye. And I mean, it's so easy to miss when you just come at that music as a fan, it, it, you know, you play it at parties and stuff and it, it's easy to miss the raw pain that runs through those records. Right. And, I, and I think at times I, as a fan have missed it and have, have enjoyed the Sonics uh, and looked at it as a representative of a time period, but, but missing the, the real pain underneath it. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that's a, that song is a cry. Um, and I, I feel like it's a cry that's resonating, like you said, um, just as loudly right now. Um, and, and I pray that we're taking the time to listen and, and to hear the pain in that cry, um, all of us as individuals and as a nation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I think these moments in our history bring up a lot of emotions. Um, they can bring up, uh, you know, senses of just overwhelming sadness, um, outrage, uh, feelings of injustice. We see um, a lot of Americans not agreeing about the solutions. Um, yeah. We're seeing a lot of, you know, disunity uh, in our country. And I think we all love this country and we want to see justice and we want to see yeah. peace. Um, and we want to see, um, you know, a change that's going to come to, to cite another classic song yeah. from that era. <laughs> um, and you know, how we get there might be something that, that people have different 
strong feelings about. Um, in this moment, uh, I think that the posture that, that I have chosen to take um, is it's time for me to listen. And, yeah. uh, you know, as a, as a white man, um, I can't begin to guess what the experiences are of someone who is not in my shoes. And, uh, you know, I want to understand the experiences and the perspectives of, of all the people who make up this great country. Um, no matter the color of your skin or what your socioeconomic background is or, or what country your parents came from. Um, it's so important for us to open our ears, to drop our defenses and to learn how to listen to one another. Um, and you know, all I can say is my ears are are opened, I think in a fresh way. And I think anybody who listens to this podcast, you're obviously a podcast listener and you're obviously a music fan. So let's just make a commitment to open our ears together to listen. Music is powerful. Music um, has the ability to, to bring messages into our lives that sometimes we can't hear otherwise. And that is why songwriters are so important, you know? Yeah. And and I, I hope that we're going to look up and, and find that we've got some new Marvin Gaye's, Stevie Wonder's, you know, Bob Dylan's, Sam Cook's, in in our music world today um, because I think our world needs it. You know, you talked about opening up your ears and I think opening up your ears, it goes hand in hand with opening your heart. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, both of us are, are fans of R&B and soul music and, and I think we're missing the point if we don't look deeply into the, the experience behind it, um, the yeah. experience behind these expressions in song um, and understand the history of African-Americans in our country, um, understand what's going on in the present day and understand when to speak up, when to stand up and when to sit down <laughs> and, and when to, to close our mouths for a moment. Because like you said, it's, it's an experience that, that we kind of see from the outside and, and we need to, to listen to those who are walking it out day by day. Yeah, yeah, well said. Well, and speaking of listening, we have yeah. uh, have another great interview with Brett James, um, a guy who comes from the Nashville world that we were both born and raised in. And uh, boy, Brett is uh, a guy who has like an amazing track record. Uh, it's yeah. it's kind of almost unbelievable um, how much this guy has done, but not just in the country world. Um, he has managed to bridge that, uh, musical divide. Um, he's been a guy who's been able to kind of move beyond the confines of certain expectations and, uh, and to work in genres that you might not expect. Um, and he's been quite successful doing it. And, and when you look at this guy's track record, um, even some of the questions we ask him, it's like, okay, well, here's these 10 number one hits we're going to briefly mention, but let's drill down on this one. Um, just, just phenomenal if you know we have sort of an unofficial uh standard when we look at at, at who we want to interview and we want we want to bring interviews to our guests of, of people that have you know some some songs under their belt you know some some hits and kind of a track record and i think that brett has probably achieved it twice like whatever we expect from a songcraft guest i think brett's got double that so we might could have done two interviews with him we 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 might could have you know split it up into some kind of part a part b um somehow we tried to funnel it into about an hour-long conversation right uh, which was was a herculean effort in and of itself um but i really really proud 
to present this interview and 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 uh, that he's kind of a, a part of the Songcraft roster now, the Songcraft family, because Brett James, man, is yeah. the real deal. Yeah, heavy hitter and a great guy, great interview, um, and has a new album out, which you guys are about to hear about. All right, well, let's get into it. Part two. Brett James is a two-time ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year with 25 number one hit singles to his credit, including Who I Am for Jessica Andrews, Blessed for Martina McBride, Love You Out Loud and Summer Nights for Rascal Flats, When the Sun Goes Down, You Save Me, Out Last Night, and Reality for Kenny Chesney, Jesus Take the Wheel, Cowboy Casanova, Something in the Water, and Church Bells for Carrie Underwood, it's America for Rodney Atkins, The Truth for Jason Aldean, The Man I Want to Be for Chris Young, Life After You for Daughtry, Mr. Know-It-All for Kelly Clarkson, Bottoms Up for Brantley Gilbert, I Hold On for Dirk Bentley, Something Bad for Miranda Lambert with Carrie Underwood, and Gonna Know We Were Here by Jason Aldean. In addition to his radio hits, Brett wrote the NBC Sunday Night Football theme songs Oh Sunday Night and Game On performed by Carrie Underwood. With over 500 cuts, the long list of artists who've recorded Brett's songs includes Taylor Swift, Backstreet Boys, Nick Jonas, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Florida Georgia Line, Megan Trainer, Paulina Rubio, Sarah Evans, Ashley Monroe, Bon Jovi, Leanne Rimes, Keith Urban, Uncle Cracker, Scotty McCreary, Steven Tyler, and many more. Brett has been nominated for three ACM Song of the Year awards, two CMA Song of the Year awards, and won a Grammy for Best Country Song for Jesus Take the Wheel. He's also been honored with three CMA Triple Play awards, each of which recognizes a songwriter who has earned three number one hits in a 12-month period. In addition to his phenomenal commercial success as a songwriter, Brett has recently released a new EP as an artist called I Am Now. Brett, welcome to Songcraft. Man, great to be here. Thank you guys for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, via, via, via Zoom or whatever we're doing. <laughs> the, <laughs> the magic of technology in the, in the COVID-19 right. era. Yeah. Um, well, Brett, tell us uh, a bit about where you grew up and, and what kind of musical influences you were soaking up as a kid that would you know, later kind of shape your sensibilities as a songwriter. You know, I, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma, the middle of absolute nowhere, a little town called Cordell. <laughs> Salute Cordell, if there's anybody listening out there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I grew up uh, just in church, you know, like so many songwriters, singers, I grew up in, in Baptist church, you know, and my mom was a, my mom's a classically trained pianist who has her master's in classical music. So she, she actually won the national concerto contest when she was young and she was, she was an amazing uh, classical musician and her family's all on that side. My uncles and aunts are all orchestra conductors. And hmm. then on my dad's side, everybody just sang, you know, they were all just church singers. And so you kind of put those two things together and those were s sort of my influences growing up. You'd think that, um, you know, being from Oklahoma and kind of ended up writing a lot of country music, I would have had country uh, as a big influence. But truth of the matter is, I almost don't even remember hearing a country song growing up. You know, all my friends huh. were listening to pop radio and rock and roll. And and I really don't even remember hearing almost anything country except maybe like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton until until I got to college. And I went to college in Texas. And so 
the the day I showed up in Waco, Texas at Baylor University, I learned about George Strait and the rest was the rest was history. Huh. Wow. You know, it sounds like when you talk about that kind of family pedigree, some people kind of absorb music from the outside in. It sounds like for you it came from the inside out. Um, what can you remember about the first song that you ever wrote? First song I ever wrote was probably a song called Sweet Slow Oklahoma. Um, that I, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's, I, I take that back. You know, it was, I was fourth grade and I was in a band and we were writing our own material. I have no idea what those songs sounded like or what they were, <laughs> Whoa. but you know, I was the songwriter in the band in fourth grade. And then, you know, I was the, I was the, the writer of the, we didn't, we were undefeated in football my senior year in high school. So I was the writer of that, whatever song we'd sang for that, you know, and stuff like that. It was always kind of just fun stuff. But I remember, uh, it wasn't until college that I kind of got, I decided that maybe I should try this songwriting thing and actually medical school after college, it's a long story, but, uh, and uh, I think the first song I ever sat down to write was a song called Sweet Slow Oklahoma. Well, talk about how you first decided to pursue music professionally um, and and how you first kind of came to Nashville and, and got started on this journey. Sure. Um, well, mine was a little backward. I was, uh, I was planning on being a doctor. Uh, my, my dad and grandfather are both uh, family doctors. And, um, so that was kind of in the, in the genetic pool or in the plan. And so I go to, I went to undergrad and then I went to medical school. And I remember as a freshman in medical school, I went to Baylor undergrad in Texas, went to Oklahoma med school where I'm from. And I, I remember and of course I'd become a big country fan and kind of in the meantime, and this is the early nineties, this is like 1990, 91, you know, Garth Brooks is exploding and, and Clint Black and Randy Travis and all that kind of stuff was happening. And I went to a concert my freshman year of med school and it was a Steve Warner concert. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Steve Warner, but he was, sure. a, he was a big, a big deal. And, uh, so I, I went and saw him, took a date in Oklahoma city when, you know, when I was whatever, 22 years old or something. And, and I'd always, you know, I'd been the front porch play music kind of guy and, 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 you know, all the way through college and been in bands all my life, you know, but never really thought about, you know, if you're from Oklahoma, you know, especially then it wasn't like, you know, being a professional musician was really on the list of, of things they told you that you could do in high school, you know? <laughs> right. And so I, you know, but I went to this, this concert and I remember, you know, I think, most people that end up being musicians have sort of a moment like this. I was just watching Steve Warner on stage and he's an amazing guitarist. And, and I knew that I'd never be able to play guitar like that. But, you know, I was watching him sing and, and I knew I could write a little bit. And I was like, you know, I think I can write and sing like that. You know, I think I can, I think I can do that if I really put my mind to it. And I literally just went home and, and, you know, started writing songs in my free time a little bit, just like anyone else would. Um, that led to, you know, taking a little money and I think it was a thousand bucks for five songs in a little terrible demo studio in Oklahoma City, you know, and recorded <laughs> them on cassette tape, you know, and sent those songs to the one person I knew in the music business who was one of my best friends from college. And she was an intern in college radio promotion in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So that was my big connect, you know, I had this huge contact as, you know, a friend doing an internship <laughs> in Ann Arbor. Right. But I sent her, I sent her my little cassette tape and she played it for her boss and her boss had been a big deal. Her boss had started at Co Records and discovered a bunch of bands, uh, in excess, people like that. And, 
uh, her her boss heard my stuff, you know, the five of the first 10 songs I'd ever written and said, you know, I got a phone call. I said, hey, I think you're pretty good and I would like to manage you. So next thing I, you know, I said, well, I'm in school. She said, well, when can you, when could you, I meet you in Nashville? So I came to Nashville on my spring break of my sophomore year in medical school. And she had a couple of record label meetings set up, you know, just to, to try to introduce me. And, we, you know, they, we walked in and they kind of patted me on, on my head and said, nice to meet you, you know see you later, come back, come back when you're ready or whatever. And, and then we kind of by happenstance fell into one more record label meeting with a guy named Tim Dubois, who was the head of Arista Records at the time. Right. And we walked into Tim's office and we played him that little five song cassette tape. And sure enough, he looked across his desk and he said, he, he, he always called everybody Mr. He said, Mr. If you move to Nashville, I'll give you a record deal. And so it was my third day in Nashville. I got offered a record deal, you know. And at that time, they were kind of the biggest record label in, you know, in town. Yeah. And you know, I didn't know what to do with that. Really, I uh, I said, well, uh, let me think about it. I'm in I'm in my second year of med school. Um, let me kind of consider this for a minute. And so what I did was I went home. I finished my what they call your sophomore board exams. I took those exams, and the next day I jumped in a Datsun, told the school I was taking a year off, and drove to Nashville. Wow, and uh, that got me to Nashville. Now I knew, I knew instinctively at the time I wasn't ready for a record deal. I just knew that, and so I did not call Tim Dubois for another nine months after I drove and lived here. And you know, so I waited tables, and I kind of got a publishing deal on my own, and uh, kind of made sure I was ready before I called him. And it was about a <laughs> year uh, after he invited me to town that I finally called him and said, "Hey." I don't know if you even remember this, but a year ago you told me if I'd moved here, you'd give me a deal. Is there any chance we can have a meeting? And uh, we got together, and sure enough, he offered me a record deal. Wow. And then, and then the story just gets longer and weirder from there, but <laughs> I'll stop for now. The, the cliche story we've heard a thousand times, go to medical school, take your boards, <laughs> get offered a record deal three days into being in town. Um, it, it's gotten old. I know that's why I'm embarrassed to say it, because everybody's, everybody's got the same story, really, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. It's, everybody's um, been to medical school. <laughs> yeah, actually, this may be one of the, you know, all, everybody's story is interesting. I always kind of say, like, you know, there's no way for, you know, people to say, how did you get in the business? Because everyone's is so different. But yours is quite different. Um, and uh, your first charting single as a songwriter was also your first charting single as an artist when the song Female Bonding, which you wrote solo, hit the charts in 1995 and peaked at number 60. Um, and the, the label then released a couple more singles from your debut album, uh, which I believe was comprised entirely of original songs. And that's another sort of like unusual part of this story, because for a major label country album in the mid 90s, you would kind of expect that to feature tons of tracks by outside writers. Um, was that something that you had to fight for at the time? You know, absolutely not, to be honest with you. Uh, Tim Dubois really believed in my songwriting. and he wanted it to be that way and what was even weirder about that record is i think 10 of the 11 songs i wrote by myself you know which never happens wow. <laughs> and so you know but but i was kind of very open to looking for outside songs and i and i i have reminded him a couple times i think i pitched him two or three songs and it ended up being number ones for other artists but <laughs> you know i really you know tim's a songwriter himself and i love that he believed in what what i was doing you know he believed in me as a as a as a whole package. And so he really encouraged me uh, to, to do, the, do that myself. And it wasn't something I planned to do or tried to do. And I was, like I said, I was very open to outside songs, but hmm. for whatever reason, he believed in, in, in my writing and that's how that ended up happening. 
Wow. Well, in 1997, you had your first charting single where you uh, were the writer and not the artist when Jeff Carson released your song, Do It Again. And then the following year, Dean Miller released his version of Wake Up and Smell the Whiskey, a song the two of you uh, wrote together that had originally appeared on, on your album. But that was really about it for you in the 1990s. And I understand that you actually left Nashville for a while. Talk about why you decided to head back home and why that wasn't the end of the story for you and, and your music. Yeah. My, my journey did, you know, kind of get weird. I, you know, I, like I said, I, I signed with Arista and everybody acted like I was going to be the next big deal for, you know, three or four years and made a good living, you know, had great publishing deals and all that stuff. And all of a sudden kind of 1998 rolls around and I had lost my record deal. I'd been on the, on the label for five years. I'd lost my record deal. The big publishing deal I had had gone away and I'd, I'd taken about a two-thirds pay cut, you know. And all of a sudden I was 30 years old and I had two little kids. And it was the late 90s and I, you, you guys might not even been around then, but in the late, you know, the early 90s were the country boom and the late 90s were kind of the country bust. Um, hmm. The late 90s is when NSYNC took over and Britney Spears and all of a sudden a lot of uh, country fans gravitated toward pop music. So, you know, country really started shrinking. And we went from, matter of fact, I think we went from somewhere like, you know, 11 or 1,200 full-time songwriters in Nashville to maybe like 300. It was that, those kind of numbers. And yeah. I was, uh, you know, that's all I'd ever done was go to med school and try to try to do this. And I kind of had a freak-out moment. I don't know if you want to call it a panic attack, but whatever I had, I had it in Target one day. And I was, I was... Uh, you know, I was looking at a pair of little kind of baby shoes for one of my sons, and I was like, man, those would be really fun to buy for my kid, but I can't afford them, and I don't want to live like this. You know, what else can I do? You know, at that point in my life, it really just became about feeding my kids, and I hmm. think that's, a, you know, that's kind of a wake-up call for parents. You have to, you know, there's one thing to chase your dream. It's another thing to drag your kids through it, and I didn't want to do that, you know? Yeah. And so I really didn't, you know, ha think I had any options at the time, so what I did was... Uh, I snail mailed the, the dean of the medical school a letter and said, you know, you're only supposed to get one year off of med school. I've been out for seven. Um, is there any chance I can come back, you know, and just go be a doctor someday? You know, it's going to be a long road. I'm going to have to, you know, go through, you know, it'll be seven or eight years before I'm actually a doctor. But at least I know someday my kids will, you know, be, be fed. And she said, well, you had good grades. So they let me back in, but I had to repeat my sophomore year of med school. And so, uh, you know, that was, to me, that was just a relief. I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have a job someday. My kids will get fed. I'm going to go be a doctor. And, you know, God sort of had other plans. I, 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 I put my house up for sale in Nashville, went back to Oklahoma city, moved back in to my parents' house because, you know, while I was waiting for my house to, to sell here, and, you know, I started med school on September 1st and on, you know, up, up until then, like you guys said, I'd had two outside cuts in my whole career. And on the third day of med school, Faith Hill cut one of my songs for her album, Breathe. And then over the next nine months, I was, you know, I, it went crazy. I had 33 songs recorded and five top 10 singles, I think, or something like that, that, you know, and that, that came out of all that. And right. it was just a, an amazing, like, run. It was really a fun year because I'd signed with this little baby publishing company and uh, a wonderful song plugger named Kelly King was my song plugger. And I would be, 
you know, studying pathology in, in, you know, in the library and I'd get a, my, my cell phone would beep and I'd go outside and she said, Hey, you know, she'd say, you know, Martina McBride just cut your song or Tim McGraw just cut your song. And that was pretty heady stuff for me. So, um, for whatever reason, God did not want me to be a doctor. I was going to kill lots of people or something. And uh, I ended up, uh, ended up finishing that year of med school and quitting for the second time, which was a really interesting conversation to have with the dean. But we had it anyway. <laughs> sure. Well, the year 2000, after that uh, Faith Hill cut and then the, the dozens of cuts that came streaming in after, I mean, that was really a, a pivotal year for you. Um, after a, a low-charting Lori Morgan single, you landed your first top 20 hit with Billy Ray Cyrus's You Won't Be Lonely Now. Um, which you wrote with John Bettis and, and then mm-hmm. ended that year with Jessica Andrews recording of Who I Am just beginning to make its way up the charts on its way to becoming your first number one hit. I am Rosemary's granddaughter The spinning image of my father And when the day is done My mom is still my biggest fan Sometimes I'm clueless and I'm clumsy But I've got friends that love me And they know just That's a song you wrote with Troy Virgis, with whom yeah. you've found a lot of success. In fact, I think that uh, Faith uh, Hillcut you referenced, um, "Love Is a Absolutely. Sweet Thing," that was one that you'd, you'd written with him. Um, you guys have have obviously really clicked um, as collaborators. Talk about um, Troy and and what it is that works so well when the two of you uh, work together. Well, Troy was a, a really big part of that whole thing I just talked about, me going back to medical school. And what was fun fun about it was that, you know, like I said, I, I signed this little publishing deal, and then I had to tell the publisher that I was going to leave town and go to med school. And I also had to tell Troy. And Troy and I had just started writing together. Um, and he's quite a bit younger than I am, but we, for whatever reason, we just were gelling. And, you know, people were starting to pay attention we hadn't got any cuts yet but we'd gotten some holes and some cool stuff and just people were liking what we were doing and so I had to say to Troy I said you know I know we're kind of getting hot but I'm gonna go to go to med school in Oklahoma I got kids to feed and Troy was like man I'll just I'll just go with you <laughs> you know and, wow. and he didn't really go with me but what he would do was he would come out and uh, stay at my parents house with me and uh, for you know four or five days and I'd go to class in the morning, and when I'd come home in the afternoon, Troy and I would write a, a song or two, stay up half the night. And we would write six or eight songs in four or five or six days, and then I would fly back to Nashville on a weekend, and we would you know, record the demos. And that's where most of those songs came from, were songs that you know Troy would fly out to, to uh, Oklahoma City, and we'd write, and then demo them back in town. And... You know, all of a sudden it just kind of started working. And, yeah. you know, there is, uh, you know, we we still write together. He's still, you know, my best friend. And, and uh, we just kind of created something between the two of us that, that was better than either, either of us were individually, which I think is what, you know, all great co-writing is about. Yeah. And Troy just, he always, always say, Troy just brings the cool, and I just kind of try to figure out what to do with it. Because... <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, Troy really has a beautiful sense of melody. Great. He's such a great guitarist and the kind of the two of us, we just bounce things back and forth. But, you know, like you said, who I am was written in my parents' kitchen in Oklahoma city. And, Hmm. you know, so we wrote a lot of, a lot of songs in that kitchen. It was great. 
Yeah. I kind of feel like the theme of this time in your life is, hey, I'm thinking about you having kids, being yeah. in med school, and this back and forth with Nashville and Oklahoma and these songs, and then the theme for me is, when does Brett James sleep? Um, <laughs> I'm sure that at some point in there, you might have found yourself catching a nap, but I, I, I can't imagine, you know, that, that what what uh, an incredibly busy time. I mean, and the floodgates were really opening in the early 2000s, then charting singles by Colin Ray, Tim McGraw, Shelley Wright, uh, uh, a Lone Star top 10 on the song With Me, uh, and then your second number one hit, uh, Martina McBride's recording of Blessed, um, which you wrote with Troy and Hillary Lindsay. What can you tell us about that song? You know, Blessed was a rare day. That was after I'd come back from med school, and uh, Troy and Hillary were actually dating at the time. They were, and so, you know, Hillary has turned into the, the legendary Hillary Lindsay as a songwriter. Um, but at that time, she was kind of almost freshly out of college and really uh, was just getting serious about her songwriting. So the three of us wrote quite a bit. And um, we, I, I'll, I, you know, for whatever reason, that particular day was a, an interesting songwriting day in a sense that you ne- it never works out like you plan it. You never, you never uh, you know, have an idea for an artist and it actually works for that artist. Usually it works for someone else or it just doesn't work at all. But this particular day, we all remember it the same way. I, 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 for whatever reason, on the way over there, I had this title called Blessed. And I, I literally walked into, it was Hillary's house, and I said, I want to write a song today for Martina McBride called Blessed. <laughs> and sure enough, we did it, and it worked out. So that's, I think that's the only time it's ever worked like that in my, in my, in my <laughs> life. But for whatever reason, that was the day that we all... We all wrote Blessed, and it was a really fun day. It was a fun day for for all of us, and and you know that song ended up being a, you know kind of a had some cool stories. It really meant meant, meant something to people, and those are those are the ones that are they're my favorite to be a part of. Well, in two thousand two, you were back on the charts as an artist uh, with the song Chasing Amy, which was followed up in two thousand three with After All. Um, both those songs reached the top forty. But you were still having serious success in that period as a writer for others, including Rascal Flatts' top five hit Love You Out Loud, Why Known as What the World Needs, and then Kenny Chesney and Uncle Cracker's number one hit When the Sun Goes Down. When the sun goes down, we'll be grooving when the sun goes down. We'll be feeling all right when the sun sinks down over the water. Everything gets hotter when the sun goes down talked about uh the the load you were carrying in in your life with with school and and everything else Uh, and you must have uh created some kind of discipline during that period that helped you balance then being a a writer and an artist at the same time um that in and of itself is is quite a bit to carry i'd like to hear a bit about just your typical day in that era (laughs) that's a great question i was just writing and writing all i remember about that was writing and writing and writing you know but i also had you know, I think three little kids at the time, you know, at one point we had three under three years old and, and it was still way harder to like to be at home from like six to nine with those three kids than it was <laughs> writing all day. So what I mostly remember is I'd, I'd write all day or, or you know, put the kids to bed and then most of the time go to my studio and stay up till two or three in the morning doing little demos or whatever I was, I was working on. It was a, a time of real hustle. You know, it was a time of, I knew that, uh, you know, I had, I had struggled for so long. I moved to Nashville in 1992, so it'd been 10 years, right? Of, of, you know, in the first seven without really any success at all, and it's, you know, so I think once you start to get a taste of it, you you really 
know you got to work hard to keep it and it, you know it makes you even hungrier for more and that's really what it did for me and and uh you know i love it too so it's not like it's it's not like you're digging ditches but it, it's it's a lot of work i was i was at least writing and demoing 100 songs a year all those years and probably more than that every year and wow. so it was a typical day would be you know a, a co-write in the morning and then i'd have to go somewhere else and sing a demo that i of a song that i'd written you know earlier that had just gotten recorded by somebody so i'm i'm bouncing you know bouncing around the studio singing demos of songs that we've written and then i'm writing more and you know it would be kind of a demo session every three weeks probably four weeks with a full band you know where we record five songs at least and sometimes ten you know and you just popping out demos and just trying to get as many songs to market as we possibly could and uh it was a fun really fun time really fun time well the mid-2000s brought the top five hits i want to live and stay with me by josh grayson uh tim mcgraw's drugs or jesus kenny chesney's keg in the closet and cheating a top 10 hit for sarah evans that entered the charts in november of 2005 um which just happened to be the same day that another of your songs entered the charts which was jesus take the wheel by carrie underwood went on to become number one country hit, top 20 pop hit, a nominee for both CMA and ACM Song of the Year, earns you a Grammy nomination for Song of the Year, a Grammy win for Country Song of the Year. I mean, that's that's one of those songwriter dream kind of moments. Um, take us back to when that song was first written and, and how that came together. Well, that was an, another very, you know, it's funny, a lot of songs happen in, you know, in trucks, you're riding around in your truck, like when the sun goes down and it just pops into your head, or, you know, you're on a writing retreat or at a camp or something, but, you know, Jesus Take the Wheel was a lot like Blessed in the sense that it was written on a very typical songwriting day uh, for Nashville, and a lot of people don't know what that looks like, so I'll just describe it, you know, you show up at the crack of 11, you know, like, <laughs> you know, just as in true songwriter form, we're, you know, it's usually i mean it used to be 10 o'clock now it's 11 so what, for, i don't know what happened but now it's always almost 11 a.m and that's what this day was i was riding with hillary Lindsay again and gordy sampson and uh we showed up at hillary's house at 11 just to write a song we didn't know who we we're going to write for what we were doing we were just showing up for work just like everyone does and you know we spent the first hour or so like we always do just catching up you know it's what's going on in your life drinking coffee and just talking about life and talking about you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, kids, whatever, whatever's going on in our lives. But then, as as it always happens, you know, it's usually around an hour into the songwriting session that it's it's time to actually sit down and, and try to, you know, have an original thought and make something up that someone someone might care about that day. And I remember this particular day. Uh, you know, we all kind of keep lists of titles. Uh, you know, we all have voice memos we keep in our phones and and lists of titles we keep in our phones typically. And and so we started going through titles, and uh, Gordy had this title called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And, you know, honestly, and when he said it, I just laughed. I, I chuckled. I was like, oh, so 
we got Jesus in a Toyota or, or is he in a, you know, is he in a Chevy? What's Jesus in a robe <laughs> driving down the road? You know, what do we do with when Jesus takes the wheel? I have no idea. And so we, we kind of laughed it off a little bit for a minute. And I remember we went on to three or four different, you know, other concepts or ideas for a song that day. And I don't know what made us come back to when Jesus takes the wheel, but we did. And we started writing about this little girl driving to Cincinnati. And, um, you know, the song sort of fell out. I don't think it took us very long to write. Um, we didn't know at the time it was special at all. You know, I, I think a lot of songwriters think if they write that, the one that's going to be a big one or a number one song, they're going to know it immediately. We had no idea. As a matter of fact, I remember uh, it was on my demo session. Of course, Hillary sang the demo and just, she, which she's the best singer in, you know, in the world. So she just crushed the demo. Hmm. But it was on my demo session and you, you know, your job when a demo session rolls around, you got this band for three hours. That's the way kind of old school Nashville demo sessions are. You got this band for three hours. You're going to try to record five good demos in three hours because you're on the clock and it costs a lot of money. And so you have to pick the, you know, if you've written 15 songs in the last month, you got to pick the, the five that you want to go on the session. And I remember Jesus take the wheel almost didn't make the session. I think it was the fifth song on, on the session that, 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 I, I, I decided I would demo that day and uh, you know we're sure glad we did because you know obviously it's just one of those it ended up being one of those magic moments Carrie Underwood had not won Idol yet um, and so you know but but she was she was just about to and then so we pitched that song through her producer Mark Bright and uh, her record label and Renee Bell was her A&R at uh, RCA at the time and the next thing you know it's it's kind of right artist meets right moment or meets right song and and uh, it really turned into something special and it's been of course uh, one of the highlights of my my life and career yeah well one one of the kind of mystical and amazing things that can happen to a songwriter and a song beyond all the awards is that you can have a phrase that kind of actually enters the public lexicon you know and I feel like Jesus take the wheel is one of those like my my wife is not a country music fan um, but there'll be a day when she's got the children and things are getting out of hand and I'll hear her go, Oh Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's amazing that, that she just sort of has pulled that now into a part of, of everyday life and everyday conversation. Um, a phrase that someone just came up with. Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I'd love to hear Gordy tell the story cause I don't know where it came from to get to Gordy. I should know that, but I don't, I don't know where it came from for that, but you're right. Now you see, I've seen more memes and more t-shirts and I remember I saw a t-shirt once said Buddha take the handlebars. You know, there's all kinds of crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff out there about Jesus take the wheel. But like I, like I said a little bit earlier, you know, you know, as songwriters, we write, you know, silly songs and songs you're just supposed to dance to and sexy songs and all kinds of you know, different genres and different styles or whatever. But what I will say is a song like that, 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 you know, you have lots of emails and lots of people coming up to you, you know, at different times in life, all of them, literally you can be in Australia and somebody's singing the words back and they come up to you after the show and go, you know, I really needed to hear that at that time in my life. And that song really means something to me. And that's kind of, to me, that's like the coolest part of, of, of being a songwriter is that, you, you know, you can make something up in a little room and, in West Nashville, Tennessee, one day, you know, with two friends, and the next thing you know, it, it goes around the world, and, and it means something to people, and I think that's kind of the magic of our, our job. Yeah. 
Well, we've already mentioned When the Sun Goes Down and Keg in the Closet, but you've had a good bit of success with Kenny Chesney, including the top five single, You Save Me, which you wrote with with Troy Virgis again, and a couple of number ones that you wrote with Kenny himself out Mm -hmm. last night in 2009 and Reality in 2011. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm going to ask you this in, in context of working with Kenny, but also in a broader sense. I'd like to hear you talk about the difference between writing a song for an artist and writing a song with an artist. Well, it's always better to write a song with an artist. <laughs> That's kind of the bottom line. Is <laughs> because you and and the reason for that for me is, you know, when you're when you're not with an artist, you're always guessing, you know. No matter how well you know that artist or think you know that artist, um you're always guessing. You don't know what they already have for the album, you know. You don't know you don't know what songs they've already chosen that they're in love with. So, you don't want to write something like one of those and if you you're you're you know on the outside you're guessing. You don't know what they're tired of saying or how, you know, you, you might write a song that sounds like a Kenny Chesney, the perfect Kenny Chesney song, but if Kenny's tired of singing a song that sounds like the perfect Kenny Chesney song and he wants something completely different, then you've wasted your day there, you know? So it's, um, you know, you're when you're writing for an artist, you're, you're, you're throwing darts and hoping, you know, and you're doing the best you can. But so it's just, it's just, it's helpful to have, you know, the artist in the room you know, and, and we're talking, you know, mentioning Carrie Underwood or Kenny Chesney, people like that. They're actually brilliant, brilliant, brilliant songwriters. I can't overstate how good they are. But, you know, even there's a lot of new artists, too, that aren't great songwriters yet. But just to have them in the room so they can give you their opinion, you know, ultimately that song is what they're going to sing every night and hopefully the rest of their career. So to have them in the room so they can say, you know, I just don't like that line. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't like that line, but I don't like that line fine let's find another line you know so I think that's the main difference is that you have you know the the person that ultimately is going to be the the singer of, and the interpreter of that song in the room and you can even hear it come out of their voice and that makes such a difference because you can work on phrasing and work on timing and work on all those things while they're in the room and not have to just guess and pitch it to them and you know either have them love it or not well, within a one-year period from May 2009 through May 2010, you celebrated five number one Billboard country singles. Um, we already mentioned Out Last Night with Kenny Chesney, but I want to just briefly list the other four and um, get a quick kind of thought or story or the first thing that, that comes into your mind about each one, um, starting with uh, It's America by Rodney Atkins. <laughs> really fun day with Angelo. Wrote that song the day after Obama gave his speech in Colorado at the Democratic National Convention. And I thought what was so brilliant about the Democratic National Convention was that right after Barack Obama gets off stage, they played a country song. And I just thought that was kind of genius in a sense that, you know, here we've got kind of the first real black presidential candidate and you know we've got all the you know there's going to be stigma around him and and he kind of was reaching to me across the aisle and maybe to part of a different a different part of america that that might have been a little more afraid of what they were seeing you know Hmm. and i just thought that was brilliant and i heard him play only in america you know and 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 then so angelo walked into our I don't know, you guys probably know who Angelo is. He's a legend. He does all the, did all the Kings of Leon records and, and discovered right. Kings of Leon. But uh, he walked in and I said, man, I, there's always room for another America song. Let's shoot for, the, let's shoot for this one. So that's what we like. It's a high school prom. It's a Springsteen song. It's a ride in a Chevrolet. It's a man on the moon and fireflies in June. And kids selling lemonade. It's cities and farms. 
So tell us a bit about Cowboy Casanova for Carrie Underwood. Uh, super fun day. First time to ever write with Mike Elizondo. Carrie and I did not know Mike. You know, Mike is a, a super legend now, but, you know, we didn't know. He, that was kind of, I think that was, I know it was. It was his first time to ever write. His first day to ever write in Nashville. And so you look up your co-writer and you Wikipedia Mike Elizondo and it's all just hard. At that time, it was hard rap, you know, all Dre, all this stuff that he'd played bass on. And, you know, he's just a legend in, in that world and now in every other world. But we were kind of just like, who, what's going to happen? You know, who's the, is this guy going to be, you know, you know, too cool for us? You know, he's going to come in, you know, just way too cool for, for me and Carrie. And Mike Elizondo, you guys probably know him. He's the sweetest human being on earth. And so he walked hmm. in and and we immediately both just went nuts about him as a person and him as a songwriter and and he had he had the he had the kind of the track or at least the groove for cowboy casanova just pulled up on on his studio pro tools deal and and and, and we just top lined to it it was a super fun day So the next one in this uh, streak of number ones would be uh, The Truth by Jason Aldean, which you wrote with uh, Ashley Monroe. Yeah, that's one of my favorite songs I've ever written, to be honest with you. Uh, wrote that with Ashley Monroe when she was very young. I don't think she was more than 16 or 17 years old. Um, we worked together. We started working together when she was 12. I kind of helped wow. her get her first record deal on Sony back in the day. And, and I'm just such a fan. She's like a little sister to me and has been for a lot of years. And... Anyway, we were just trying to be super honest, and you know, it that song breaks every songwriting rule in the world because you really don't know what the song's about until the literally the last phrase of the song. And so, you know, we finished writing it, and we demoed it, and we loved it, and just knew no one would ever record it, you know. And then <laughs> it was, I think, three years later after we'd written that song that uh, that it got to Jason Aldean, and, and he took it to number one. It was a really cool moment, and still one of my favorites. So the the last question or the last song in this in this uh, list of of number ones would be the man I want to be by Chris Young. Love to hear a bit about that one. I wrote that with Tim Nichols, and uh, that was just kind of came from Tim. You know, he uh, uh, kind of another typical Nashville songwriting day in, in in my office. But Tim came in with, you know, he really came in with just some lyrics. You know, I want to be a good man. I do like I should man. I want to be the kind of man the mirror wants to see and that's really you know i have to give tim full credit for that one because he came in with that those lyrics and and the two of us just wrote that that day and and uh you know i was i was so proud of chris i love chris young and i was just so proud of the way he interpreted it and sang it and you know he was a he was a kid you know honestly at the time i mean he was you know that's been quite a few years ago and he but yeah i bet he wasn't 21 22 years old at the time but he he sure sang it like like he meant it you know and and really uh really really sold that song so uh, hmm. it was uh, a wonderful voice to have on that one. 
I want to be a good man I do like I shouldn't man I want to be the kind of man the mirror likes to see I want to be a strong man and admit that I was wrong man God I'm asking you to come change me into the man I want to be well, covering the number ones is just barely skimming the surface of that one-year period that we're talking about. It's crazy to look back on that and, and see that there are still huge songs like Summer Nights by Rascal Flatts. But, uh, you know, that one only went to number two, so we don't have time to do justice to your <laughs> vast... Right, right. Uh, you hate <laughs> the number twos, man. You hate those. <laughs> right. Um, but I do want to kind of piggyback on something that you were talking about a moment ago, and you are of course known as a country songwriter um but you do look at cowboy casanova and there's mike elizondo the guy who wrote into club with 50 cent and the real slim shady with eminem not not the guy that you'd expect to see um on a on a country song but that's just one example of the ways that you've had success kind of blurring the boundaries of country music um with other genres and i'm thinking of um, collaborations like um, with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora on Till We Ain't Strangers Anymore and What Do You Get? Um, you collaborated with Nickelback's Chad Kroger on the Tim McGraw country single It's a Business Doing Pleasure With You as well as on Daughtry's top five pop single Life After You. Um, I look at collaborations with Uncle Cracker and Kid Rock on their song uh, Good To Be Me and you know then you're working with pop writers like Esther Dean on Kelly Clarkson's big hit Mr. Know-It-All many more examples that's just kind of skimming the surface um but coming from a country background and that nashville model of collaboration was there an adjustment for you in terms of learning how to work with writers that come from a different genre and a different set of assumptions i think so i yeah i think there was uh well especially i mean i'm old enough to basically remember when kind of track writing started becoming a thing you know and and it's 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 kind of funny how that works. It kind of becomes a thing and then it goes away, and then it becomes a thing and it goes away. But I remember the first the first you know basically the first time I went to L.A. and and I don't remember who I was top lining with. It might have been Esther Dean. But you know you all of a sudden you're you're given ten or twelve tracks and you just kind of just thumb through the tracks and and you're in the studio already and you top line one, sing the demo and walk out. You know. And I remember that that was. Uh, seemed like a weird way to work coming kind of from the Nashville we have you know guitar and piano and two people in the room or three people in the room um but I also remember how kind of fun and and exciting and gratifying it was in a sense that you know uh, it's a top line to a track if if you got a good singer in the room you walk away with a record you know (laughs) and that's pretty cool and so you know to learn those different skills and just to be in different rooms it, it was was and is an ongoing experience I think every Every day is new, and, and that's what's kind of cool about writing is that every room is different, every write is different, 
Um, you know, it, and and so I, f- I feel like my job as, you know, I used to think up for a minute I thought I was going to be a track guy, you know. Well, then I realized that there were people that can do in five minutes what it takes me five days to do, so I kind of gave up on that. Hmm. And I've kind of settled into the role of, of, of top liner, and I can sing the demo if we need it sung. But, you know, I think I think for me at least it's it's having – a bunch of tools in my toolbox so that I can play whatever role, you know, as many different roles in the room as I, as I can. And I think that's an important kind of lesson for a lot of songwriters is to, to just be able to, you know, sometimes you're going to be the editor, you know, sometimes you're going to be, you're going to be driving the whole thing, you know, sometimes it's going to be your idea and your concept and someone else is just going to be the helper or the editor, but you have to be able to kind of figure out, you know, every day is different. And, and, you know, some days, and I say this a lot lately as I've, as I've grown older and written, you know, uh, you know, we, we talk about the hits and those, that's awesome, but I've written 3,500 songs, right? And so, wow. you know, and I, th- I think I've had 500 recorded, which is amazing to me, but that means 3,000 songs suck, you know, or, <laughs> have, or have never, you know, come to anything. And, but, you know, the thing that you can learn in that many songs and that many co-writes is... It's just kind of how to, to just, you know, how to try to play a different role, the, the role that's needed from you. And now when I work with a lot of younger writers, I feel like, you know, I can I can be a lot of things, but I can't be 18. You know, I can't have the influences that an 18 year old has right now. You know, so obviously an 18 year old or a 21 year old or a 24 year old are going to have way different and probably way cooler pop influences. If I'm writing a pop song today than I do. <laughs> So yeah. a big part of my job now is to shut up, you know, and let mm-hmm. them kind of lead because, you know, they're hearing melodies and hearing different, you know, the things that they've grown up with that aren't necessarily what I've grown up with. And, you know, so I've, it helps me get stuck out of my ways. And my job is to now, in my opinion, just be a listener and a lot of times be that editor, help, you know, I, I do sort of know how to take a song, hopefully, to get it to that hit, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I can, if I can keep my mouth shut, the the more the better these days. <laughs> if that makes any sense, <laughs> it makes a ton of sense. And and it's funny you talk about the sort of uh, success rate of thirty five hundred songs and only this certain number getting cut. I mean, the 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 closest analogy I can think of is baseball, where we look at someone who gets a you know hits the ball three times out of ten, and we say amazing hitter, right. um, because it's just that hard to do, you know. Um, and out of those 3,500 songs, we see yet another number one coming, though, with Dirk Bentley's I Hold On, uh, earned ACM and CMA nominations for Song of the Year. So I hold on to the things I believe in. A little bit about that song, which you and Dirks wrote together. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever written with Dirks. Um, and Dirks had been a friend for a long time, and for whatever reason, our paths had just not crossed. I mean, the reason our paths hadn't crossed, he just never called me to write. <laughs> but <laughs> finally, Dirks called me and said, hey, man, you want to write a song? And so he came over to my studio one day. And, uh, you know, that's I always use this as an example, or that song as an example. You know, songwriters have this thing where we always apologize for any idea we bring into a room. There's always this, man, this probably sucks, but I'll throw <laughs> it out there. We're always afraid, you know. Everybody has to 
qualify everything with a, you know, you help me with this, or I know this is probably nothing, but I got this idea. And, and even if, even if we think it's the greatest idea ever, we still preface it with, this probably sucks, you know? And so Dirk's happened to literally walked in with some lyrics on a napkin and, and, you know, everybody talks about lyrics on a napkin so much that it sounds cliche, but his lyrics were literally on a napkin <laughs> and, and he did that, man, this probably sucks. I'm sure this is nothing. You know, I, I, I don't know where this came from, but I got this little idea and he essentially read me the first verse to, to that song I hold on, which I think is brilliant. It's about his truck and it's about his guitar that he's been with forever and, and the things he believes in and the things that he's comfortable with, you know, and I said, well, that's the song we're going to write today. <laughs> and so uh, I think I helped a little bit with the chorus and we had a, we had a really fun, beautiful day together uh, and wrote, wrote, we've written some other songs since, but Dirk's one of my favorite people. And uh, mm. that was a, it was a really great day. Well, normally when we do these interviews, the guest has maybe a, a 10 or 12 year period where they had a lot of success. Um, but you just keep going and going and going with the big hits. Uh, there's Bottoms Up for Brantley Gilbert. Gonna Know We Were Here for Jason Aldean. Tons of ongoing success with Carrie Underwood, including Something Bad, her chart-topping duet with Miranda Lambert, um, Something in the Water, which topped both the country and the Christian chart, uh, and Church Bells, yet another Carrie Underwood number one. Um, you know, and there's plenty of people who go to Nashville, they hit on a hot streak, they score a bunch of hits, um, but not many who are able to sustain it for two decades or more. Um, and, and you talked a little bit about you know, as you have learned to to listen to younger writers and you know how to kind of, you know, bring something across the finish line to a hit that you sort of even adapted your your approach um, to the process over the years. Um, but what do you think that that is is what has kind of made the, the difference for you in terms of having that ongoing success? Or, or could you even kind of point to uh, a particular ingredient that you think has um, allowed you to be able to to continue doing this at the top of your game for so long? Well, thank you. It's very flattering to say all that. I, I really don't have an explanation for that, except that maybe I th my goal has always been, at least as a songwriter now, as an artist, it's a completely different thing and it's a curse as an artist. But as a songwriter, my goal has always been to not have a style. You know, I don't want you to hear a song on the radio and say, that's a Brett James song. I just don't want you to. I want you to hear it's a Jason Aldean song or that's a Bon Jovi song or that's a, you know, Megan Trainor song. Uh, uh, my goal is, is to try to be invisible. And, and I think the less style you have, because styles come in and out in songwriting and in music and in, you know, in, in kind of all art, you know, I think maybe the less kind of, you know, like I said, it's kind of goes back to the tools in the toolbox. I think the more tools in the toolbox you have, more things you can kind of help with the more that you, you know, maybe you can just kind of keep getting invited, <laughs> you know? And so that's all I've ever tried to do is just try to try to just, just stay in the background and, and be helpful in whatever the situation requires. Yeah. Well, and with all that success with other artists, you are returning to your roots as an artist. Uh, you recently released a new EP called I Am Now. Um, the title track, which opens the set, it it's, reveals like a, a Memphis-style soul influence. If I never told you
Talk about why it was important for you at this point in your life and career to write and record these songs. Well, I'm an old guy. I turned 50 last year, right? And I had a, I had a, I had my 50th birthday. It's a true thing. And you know, as big birthdays come along, I think all of us take a little bit of stock, maybe, or at least, you know, you you kind of sit down and you say, "I've been doing this a long time. This is fantastic. I want to keep doing my my job. I love making music for other people, writing music for other people." But you know, it kind of struck me that I hadn't put anything out of my own really in tw- at least twenty years. Chase and Amy, you guys brought that up. It surprises me anybody remembers my singles, you know. <laughs> but you know, so it's been about twenty years since I put out you know anything on my own. And you know, my kids are older now, and I was like, you know, my kids have really never heard me be me. They've never really heard me sing like me. They've heard me do sing a lot of demos, trying to sound like someone else. So I, you know, and I thought it was just time. Let's just do it, you know. And, and, and I kind of realized that at least part of my musical life going forward, you know, is, is I want to be, you know, making music for my voice that I just love and hopefully getting to play it live for people. Because, you know, I, I lo- as much as I love sitting in rooms and, and writing songs and sending them out to the world, it's, you know, there's no, there's no human connection to that after, after you write the song. You know, there's no standing up on stage and really, you know, sharing it with people. You get to watch the artist do that, but you don't really get to do that yourself. And it's not it's it's a song you wrote for someone else. So it's not really you even then. It's not your artistry. And so I kind of just I took two weeks off uh, right after my fit. I just dropped my calendar for two, at least two weeks. And I said, you know, I just sat there on my couch by myself with no agenda, no genre. I'm not trying to write hits for any any market or trying to you know create widgets for any marketplace i'm just what what do i want to say musically how do i want to you know i want this to be my most authentic voice and that's kind of what came out was what i'd call kind of a nashville soul record and it ended up being a lot of horns a lot of soul sisters you know um and so i went and recorded you know a whole album later that summer at palm oak studio here in nashville beautiful studio called smokestack and uh, it's just, you know, just now coming around to finally getting out. It took a while to make the record. It took a while to find the right team to, to help put it out. And uh, finally found the right team and, and uh, getting it out to the world. So it's really exciting for me just to have some of my own, my own stuff out there. I think that's fascinating, you know, especially coming off the previous question where you talked about, you know, your job is kind of to be invisible. And then, you know, this is not about your job. This is about your um, artistry. And, you know, I think that for some people, it might be hard for them to understand the difference because they're going, well, wait, you're writing songs in both instances. But there really is um, something very different, as you say, about uh, I'm trying to bring somebody else's artistic vision to fruition versus, hey, this is just me and my identity. And I don't care if this is uh, a number one hit or if only my kids ever hear it. I just got to do this because I have to. And it's for me. And I think that the fact that you are, um, are doing a project like this, you know, after all these years of success speaks to why you've had so much success, because even in the attempts to, um, to, to be invisible, as you say, that center point of passion um, that that made you first fall in love with music is obviously still there, and that still drives um, what you do. And I think that you know really comes across on uh, these new songs, um, particularly the the one that really stands out to me is uh, "True Believer," which just sounds like you know something that's truly 
kind of from deep within you. Um, talk a bit about that song in particular. Well, that song, uh, yeah, it is. It's true. It's a very honest song. I, you know, and that's the other. That's the other thing about writing for yourself. You know, as opposed to writing for other people, you're just trying. You know, you're not trying to put words in other people's mouths. You're just trying to be honest. And this, that particular one, you know, I'd kind of landed on this. Everything was was kind of big horns and soul sisters and big kind of like you said, like Nashville soul. But uh, it was kind of one of the last things I I was just writing one day by myself, really once again with no agenda, and just kind of wrote the first verse and chorus to that. And I knew immediately it was about my daughter Claire. You know. I have three sons and a daughter. It's about my sons too, but they would never admit that I wrote a song about them. So it has to be about my daughter. You know, that's <laughs> that's the way that works. But um, and she uh, she was at school in California. She goes to Pepperdine. She's a freshman there this year. And I, I guess I just wrote that maybe last fall. Um, hmm. But I remember picking up the phone and calling. I go, Claire, I'm writing you a song today. And I, I, you know, most of the, like she's she's known I've written songs for a long time, but rarely do I write something personal. I said, just so you know, I'm writing you a song today and it's called True Believer and I'm really excited about it. And, you know, just kind of that kind of phone call. And uh, so it was it was fun for me to kind of get to put an orchestra on that and, and uh, strip it down to just acoustic guitar and strings. And, uh, you know, it's it's streaming like crazy, so I'm excited about that. There's a, there's a I, you know, if you guys want a good cry or any listeners want a good cry, go to, I guess it's on my YouTube channel. Somebody did a uh, a lyric video to that thing with all these you know, parent-child reunions and just just everything that can possibly make you cry, it'll it'll do right. it. So if you really, if you want to have a good parent cry, just go to go to YouTube and look up the lyric video, The True Believer. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. Oof, yeah, I have I have two daughters myself, so I I'm uh, I, that sounds amazing, and I'm also afraid of. I it. dare you, <laughs> I dare you to do it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett. Uh, Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Congrats on the on the new music, and uh, very cool to to get to hear uh, your artistic vision and to get to hear your own voice and your own songs. In addition to all the amazing commercial hits that you've given us, um, and it's just cool to get some insight into kind of the backstory and uh, and what your journey has been up to this point. So uh, it was great to great to chat with you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.